Hi everyone, it's Casper here. We've got some fabulous live shows coming up that we hope you'll be able to join us for. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, Washington DC on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois, where my uncle was born, on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. We hope to see you there. Chapter 20, The Dementors Kiss. Harry had never been part of a stranger group. Crookshanks led the way down the stairs. Lupin, Pettigrew, and Ron went next, looking like contestants in a six-legged race. Next came Professor Snape, drifting creepily along his toes. I'm Caspar Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. In the ninth grade, we had this big English project, and we each presented on our project. And this girl in my class, her presentation was the day before mine, and she called me the night before her presentation for help on her project. And I remember very clearly she called at like 11 o'clock, and we were not allowed to talk on the phone after 9. And so she called and asked for my help, and I said, I'm really not allowed to talk very much, but this is what I'm going to be presenting on, and I don't know if that helps to sort of like help you jog your memory. But this girl was clearly very behind because this was a huge, weeks-long project, and she hadn't even started the night before. So the following morning, I go to class, and it's her day to present, and she presents on my project. I mean, start to finish my project. So I'm, of course, livid, but my teacher holds me back after class and was like, Vanessa, I just want you to know I know that this is something that you have been working on, and I happen to know that that isn't something that this young lady has been working on. So I just want you to know tomorrow when you make your presentation, don't worry about it. I was like, okay, great. Thank you so much. So I come in the following morning. I make my presentation. This young woman raises her hand and says, Vanessa, this sounds a lot like my presentation. Accuses me of cheating in front of the entire class and goes to the principal in order to tell on me. So we go for this like ethics committee meeting at my school. And Ms. Wong, one of my favorite teachers ever, is like very clear as to what happened. She tells the school principal, Mr. Ballack, he believes me. I have like all of this evidence of just like weeks and weeks of research. And there's like nothing at risk for me. But I remember sitting in this ethics committee meeting and this woman looking at me while we're being questioned. And she says, but Vanessa, you remember being on the phone with me the night before my presentation and me telling you what I was going to present on. And I just I couldn't contain myself. My 14 year old self was like, hey, you know, you're lying. You know that I know you're lying. How can you sit there and lie to me when you know that I know that you're lying? And she just sort of sat there like completely stone-faced. And because there was no proof that she cheated, she got a C on the project. But I'm telling you, I wanted her to like fail and be punished for the rest of her life. And I tracked her throughout high school. She got into a good college. She is a lawyer now in the irony of all ironies. What? Yes. And I am sure that she has matured and like isn't a cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater anymore. 
And it's not like I want her to be suffering, but I remember sitting in that ethics committee room knowing that there was just no justice. Vanessa, there are two things that I love about this story. One, I think this is the most hilarious story on the podcast. And I love that you're still really annoyed by it now. But it that's so true. Like those things when we're children, like that doesn't go away. I feel the same way about people I went to school with. So I get it completely. And the second thing is cheetah, cheetah, pumpkin eater is the greatest rhyme of all time. I'm going to teach that to every young child I know. It's like liar, liar, pants on fire. But it's better. one of the great truths of name calling. <laughs> but more seriously, I do think there's an interesting piece that we're learning about justice here, which is, you know, it wasn't that you had been unfairly treated by the school system, right? Both your teacher and your headmaster knew that you were innocent. But what you were looking for was something that made the culprit suffer. And I think that's really interesting because how do we find the line between justice and revenge or justice and our own nastiness because we've been hurt in some way? So I'm really looking forward to digging into that theme today. Right. I'm not proud of the fact that I like wanted her to suffer. Right. right? But it is something you felt. But it's something I really felt. And I especially, I just remember the incredulity of someone lying knowing that I knew that she was lying. Right. It blew my mind. But now... I'm going to blow your mind with my 30-second recap. Yes, I know. I'm so excited for you to do that. Casper, are you ready? Yes. Tell me what happened in the chapter in three, two, one, go. So this is a pretty short chapter. Uh, everyone emerges from the Whomping Willow and the moon is shining. And so suddenly Lupin turns into a werewolf and everyone's freaking out um, because they're seeing him change. And so Sirius turns into a dog to like fight him off. Uh, and then like they're fighting and suddenly Pettigrew changes into a rat and runs off. And like, ah, everything is going on. Uh, oh God, what else happens? Oh, and then um, and then Harry follows Sirius and then there's lots of Dementors and they're coming in and he tries to expect a Patronum and Hermione can't do it. And then suddenly, as just as bad, he's about to faint, there comes a Patronus. Let me just throw this to the producer real quick. Do I have to go if he does a perfect job? I think there were bits that I missed. I mean, I'm being told I have to do it, and I believe our producer, but I'm just so impressed. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So I'm just going to add some details. Crookshanks holds down the, like, button so that everybody can exit the Whomping Willow. He's, like, the gentleman of this chapter. Um, While Harry is sitting there trying to cast his Patronus, his good thought is that he's going to get to live with Sirius, who he's known, like, five seconds, and he just hates the Dursleys so much. Um, Harry sees what a Dementor looks like, and it's scabby and disgusting, and he's, like, about to get the Dementor's kiss. And then he gets saved sort of by something that looks like himself, and he's like, could it be? And he doesn't understand, but there's, like, a bright light. Nice. Thanks. But like you really, I feel like you nailed it. This one is only six pages. <laughs> that helps. But this is the chapter that made me fall in love with the books. Casper, where would you like to start in talking about justice this week? The thing that strikes me on reading this chapter is towards the end, when Harry is trying to cast a Patronus, the Dementors have come for Sirius. He's collapsed. He's weak after the fight with Lupin. And Harry's happy thought to create his Patronus is that Sirius is innocent and I'm going to go live with him. And for me, it feels like what Harry is focusing on there is really about 
this question of justice, not really focusing on happiness. And there's this thought that he's going to live with Sirius, but I think it's like a promise or something. It's not a happy memory, which is what we know you need to think of to cast a Patronus. So I wanted to ask you how you thought about that scene, because I think there's a lot more to pull apart. Yeah, I think that that's right. I don't know. Our dreams can make us really happy, but I think that something that's entangled in dreams is a little bit of fear that it won't come true. So, yeah, I think it's not quite a happy memory. But what I do think is interesting, so because it doesn't work as a spell, I read it as a prayer, Mm. not intentionally as a prayer. But what's interesting to me is that the prayer is answered. Harry, as you say, is repeating to himself, Sirius is innocent, Sirius is innocent. And then even though Harry is not able to cast a Patronus, a Patronus is cast and he and Sirius are both saved. And it seems to be making the argument that if something unjust is about to happen, justice will prevail to some extent. And I know that the books overall don't have that message. But in this moment, Harry is like, Sirius is innocent. Sirius is innocent. And then the world comes to meet Harry in that moment and absolves Sirius. I think it's a beautiful moment. I'm not sure the book is arguing that. I guess that's not how I read it. Because now we enter Time Turner morass. Because, of course, it is Harry that casts the Patronus, we find out. And so there is something affirming here about himself and his own abilities. And you are the one you've been waiting for, that kind of thing. But I do like the idea that it's sort of a prayer. You know, he at the end is realizing Hermione can't cast a Patronus, right? She's never learned or practiced. And he's realizing that only a tiny little wisp of silver is coming out of his own wand. And so at that point, it's a sort of panic. And, you know, I don't think he believes he can fix it anymore. In some ways, he's sort of handing over to divine justice, perhaps. Yeah, Right. But that comes true. Right. Which I guess is the thing that I'm trying to make meaning of, because I resist that idea so strongly that like something swoops in and offers divine justice. But I sort of like the idea that there is a discernible divine justice that we should be tapping into and be like chanting ourselves that would motivate our actions. I mean, this is the way that I believe that prayer really works. Harry keeps repeating, Sirius is innocent, Sirius is innocent. And in contemplating that prayer, he becomes even more passionate and more redoubled in his efforts to make sure that Sirius does not go back to Azkaban. And then in the next chapter, fight so hard to make sure that Sirius doesn't go back to Azkaban and is able to make it happen. So I guess I sort of talked myself out of it being divine justice, and it is the kind of justice that I believe in, which is that if we prey on something, if we really think about something and get passionate about it, then we have a better chance of making that justice true on earth. The other thing that strikes me is just how quickly justice can fall apart. You know, for, gosh, about half of the book now, we've been working up to this moment. And And at the beginning of the chapter, all seems well, right? You know, Snape is being floated gently back up to the school and Pettigrew is in chains. And then suddenly, because Lupin transforms, everything falls apart. And I guess it's like a case where suddenly a crucial piece of evidence goes missing or a witness dies or, you know, one link in the chain that leads to justice can break and the whole situation goes back to chaos. Or just because this incredibly unfair, random thing happened all these years ago, which is Lupin being bit. 
like that can never be made right. It goes back to this like original unfair thing. It's like getting a cancer diagnosis, which is just unfair. And you can take all the medications and you can show up for all your appointments and do all the chemo and fight, fight, fight. And then you just die from the cancer anyway. And it's not because of anything bad that anybody did. The doctors did everything they could. You had the right energy. You drank all the right tea, whatever it is. And like, there's just this original unfair thing that can never be undone. And like, that's just the way it is. Oh, Lupin. So Vanessa, where else do you see justice in this chapter? Well, so I see like a lack of justice in the Dementors trying to kiss Harry. I have no idea what that's about. Mm. It's just like in chaos and... Because they've been given permission to kiss Sirius, but not Harry. They've been given permission to kiss Sirius, but not Harry. I mean, we know that the Dementors are starving and whatever, which we've talked about before. But Snape is like, well, maybe we can also offer them a werewolf. Like, we know that the Dementors are these incredibly uncontrolled arbiters of justice. And yes, they've been given permission to kiss Sirius, but they just like go for Harry And it just reminded me of the epidemic of police shooting young black men. There are these like circumstantial moments and this completely innocent person, Harry, just gets attacked and swarmed the way that we see like innocent young black men constantly being killed because of unjust, quote unquote, law enforcement. And I just couldn't shake that metaphor of the Dementors attacking Harry and even to some extent serious, even though they'd been given permission to the way that we are seeing police brutality present itself in contemporary society. Vanessa, this is really striking. In the text, there's actually a sentence. Okay, let me let me read it. A paralyzing terror filled Harry so that he couldn't move or speak. His Patronus flickered and died. White fog was blinding him. I'm just thinking of the racialized context of police brutality and just the fact that it's white fog was blinding him. These Dementors are moving just as a fog or like a force field and that it isn't about the individual relationship between the police officer and the victim, but it's this fog, like, right, that's the whole idea of racism is that it's not about individual prejudice, but it is structural and it is woven into every piece of our being and the structures of school and law and media and all of these pieces that make up our existence. And it's therefore so difficult to target in a way because the fog is always moving. It's not like you change one law, the Education Act or, you know, voters' rights. Like the target is always moving and these dementors don't even obey the rules that they've been set. Dumbledore said you're not allowed on the grounds. We're on the grounds of Hogwarts right now. So I'm really just struck by what you said. Yeah. I mean, and just like the complete injustice of Peter Pettigrew getting away, mm. right? I mean, if anybody, quote unquote, deserves the Dementor's kiss, it's this coward who doesn't care about anybody but himself, who we know has like nowhere to go out in society except back to Voldemort and is like, I mean. And who's using the mercy that he's been shown, as we've talked about, to like target the person who showed mercy. Which is just like your story. This girl calls you and you help her out. And then what does she do? She turns on you, not only by using your presentation, but then accusing you of lying. Ugh. Which she had to do, right? Because otherwise she looked like the cheater. I mean, it was, it wasn't 
even malice, right? It was just this cowardice in protecting her own hide. If she didn't accuse me of cheating, then she was the cheater. Which is exactly what Pettigrew ends up doing, right? He's like, okay, well, now everyone knows my story. There's only one place I can go, and that's Voldemort. And again, I uh, we keep returning to this every episode, but this sense that the early decision to lie ends up leading you way further than you would have originally intended. Like, Pettigrew doesn't want to go back to Voldemort. That's why he's been in hiding all this time. My mom and I just got into this joking fight. She gave me a vase for my new apartment and this like beautiful vase that was on our kitchen table when I was a kid. And she was like, I thought this could go on your kitchen table. And I was like, oh, I actually think it looks better somewhere else. And she was like, you know, Vanessa, you could have just humored me and put it where I want it and then moved it as soon as I left. (laughs) And I was like, yes, but then next time you come and visit, I would have to like remember that that had happened and like moved it back. It would have perpetuated this cycle of lies and patronizing you. And I, of course, became very manipulative and was like, I have more respect for you than that. I don't want to patronize you. And like we were all kidding and this was all in good jest. And she was right. It actually looked best on the kitchen table. But I have so much anxiety about lying because I'm like, it's just easier to remember the truth. It's not that I'm morally above lying. It's just like the truth is easier. Also, lying leads you to Voldemort. Lying leads you to Voldemort. Lying, patronizing my mom and lying about the vase would have led to a break in our trust and relationship, right? I would have seen my mom as someone who I had to indulge on these things, and I would have had to move the vase every time she came into town and resented her more for that extra effort that her coming to visit would have led to. And I really think these tiny lies can often just cause like more and more harm. Obviously, there's a time and a place for a white lie, but like, I think we have to be careful. Yeah. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who've recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, And I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. 
Now, I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own Fleur sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. Vanessa, I don't know if this counts as justice, but there's this idea of poetic justice when things come around back to you in a way that feels right. Um, I love poetic justice, except when it happens to me. (laughs) When I'm rude to someone and then someone's really rude to me, I'm like, I deserved that. (laughs) But I feel like there's a couple of moments of that. You know, we've had so much of Harry's absence of family. He's alone in the world. That's how we start these stories. He's living with the Dursleys, who, although their biological family, do not behave like family. And here is someone who he had feared in Sirius and who'd been his arch enemy in the absence of Voldemort for this book at least and then he's reunited with his godfather in a way of love and care and he's getting excited about the fact that he's going to be able to live with Sirius and escape the Dursleys right there's this nice kind of arc there as is the fact that they've just been talking about James and James's absence and here is this new kind of father figure in Sirius and that as Sirius escapes Azkaban, Pettigrew is going to go to Azkaban. There's, there's all of these kind of little connections. So I was just wondering if you saw any other kind of moments of poetic justice or all those cycles being completed in some way. No, everything you just said is so temporary and it all falls apart. <laughs> and that's true. <laughs> it's like so beautiful. And then you're like, wah, wah. it all falls apart so quickly. And... I actually think it leads to more harm, sadly, right? Just tragically, not even sadly. I think that the reason that the Dementors come onto the grounds, even though Dumbledore has thrown a fit about it, and they seem to have been pretty good about staying off the grounds, they're attracted maybe because Sirius is happier than he's ever been or happier than he's been in all these years because he's like, oh, I'm going to be free. Pettigrew is going to come to justice. Harry is going to live with me. I'm going to be able to make this up to Lily and James by taking good care of their son. And the Dementors are like, hmm, happy people. Let me go eat those memories. So I actually think that this goes back to like there's these original like rippings and tearings of justice and it we can't repair them or it takes so much effort to repair them that it literally requires a time turner. Luckily, we have one of those. <laughs> Luckily. <laughs> Luckily, it turns out. Kazra, do you want to end on a, a lighter note before we move on, maybe? Is there any other moment of justice you want to talk about? I feel like there's a small moment of poetic justice again in that Snape has been such a jerk the previous chapter. And such a, like, doler outer 
of not justice. Exactly, like revenge. And as he's in his state of not being able to move and he's being floated along by Sirius, Sirius is not perhaps the most careful (laughs) and Snape keeps bumping his head and his toes keep, you know, hitting the floor or his head keeps hitting the ceiling and I'm sure it's not helping his concussion, but it it feels (laughs) like a slight moment of justice. I agree. He's going to be like really sore and have all these weird bruises the following day. And because it's like such a non-proportional response to what Snape has done and is doing, I feel like we can take joy in it, right? It's like he's being awful and he's going to have like a stubbed toe feeling and a bumped head. Casper, now it's time for our spiritual practice and we are going to do Lectio Divina. Please help me pick a passage. I'm going to thumb through. Tell me when to stop. Stop. And I'm going to close my eyes and point. Okay. The sentence is, Dementors, at least a hundred of them, gliding in a black mass around the lake towards them. So, Casper, what is literally happening? Stage one of Lectio. So we're at the point where Sirius and Harry are down by the lake with Hermione and suddenly they notice something is amiss and these Dementors are coming to them, being attracted, as you'd said, by the kind of happiness, I guess, that Sirius feels now and the fact that Sirius is on the loose and free. Ding, ding, ding. You're not a cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater. You're a winner, winner, chicken dinner. Oh, my God. How many of these are there? I don't know. Stick with me and I'll teach you the best parts of being American. Are apparently these expressions. <laughs> okay, so do, would you like to hear the sentence again before we do step two? Yes. Dementors, at least a hundred of them, gliding in a black mass around the lake towards them. So step two is allegory. What other stories are we reminded of? What metaphors can we glean from this? The words black mass really stand out to me. You know, the kind of satanic liturgy is called a black mass. So rather than a traditional mass that you would have in a Catholic church, the black mass is a sort of inversion of that. And I think we're seeing, you know, as we've talked about, an inversion of this happy moment, right? A breaking of justice so that something which traditionally is seen as holy and sacred and beautiful is kind of profaned purposefully. I'm also thinking, I mean, Black Mass is just the title of the book about Whitey Bulger, who's this famous Boston ex-mobster who's now in jail. And I don't know, like the mob always has like a very specific idea of justice. And takes justice into its own hands, right? right. They're not going to bring people who step out of line to the police. They're going to go swim with the fishes. (laughs) And so it just reminds me of the Dementors as this like mafia family who's all in on it together and is like, we don't have to bring Harry to trial. We can just do what we want and (laughs) we operate according to our own rules. So step three of Lectio, what does this remind us of in our own lives? Let me read you the sentence. Dementors, at least a hundred of them, gliding in a black mass around the lake towards them. What does this remind you of? The memory that comes up for me was... 
kind of on the edges of the school where I went, there was this forest and, and a big lake, which I'm now thinking is not too different from Hogwarts in some ways. And it would be the place where students went in the summer, right? People would come and sometimes you'd have a picnic and people would go swimming. And there was like, you know, one of those ropes that you jumped on and landed in the water. And it was a place of real joy. But I remember at some point learning that a student had drowned there. And suddenly people didn't congregate there in the same way. I mean, he was 17, he was strong and healthy. He just got tangled in weeds or something. And suddenly the place became a frightening place. And the lake is such a staple of the Hogwarts environment. And it's just making me think what this lake is going to mean for Harry in the future, but also for the school. We've seen how the Whomping Willow becomes this piece of the land which has a story and now the lake is. And yeah, I'm just thinking about how place can become frightening and menacing when something scary happens. Yeah, I never thought about the fact that this is the same lake that, you know, in Goblet of Fire, this is the same lake. It always felt like somehow... Yeah, and earlier in this book, they're saying how the sun is shining and people wish they could just sit by the lake instead of revising. Yeah. Yeah. So I was reminded of something a little bit silly also to do with the lake, which is that I was traveling with my brother and my best friend, and we were hanging out by a lake, and... We were just so naive. We're from California, and there isn't a huge mosquito population in California. And we were like, oh, we'll watch the sunset over the lake. And it was this, like, beautiful thing. And this huge black mass of mosquitoes came. And, I mean, like, we were swarmed by mosquitoes. And for days after, I was just covered in, like, a pox of mosquitoes. And I just will never forget, like, this beautiful, serene moment with, like, very good intentions of, like, three people planning to admire beauty and how quickly it just became awful. And so, yeah, I mean, to your point, right, like, how quickly a moment can go from being beautiful and serene, just like in this chapter where... Sirius and Harry are going to live together, and then one thing happens, and it all sort of falls apart. Hmm. So, Vanessa, for stage four, what is it that you're being called to do by this piece of text? This is really silly, but I don't want to miss the beauty in front of me, even for all the, like, black masses of bugs. So I'm going to Maine next week for a little writing retreat, and I feel called to pack long sleeves and just like try to withstand the horrible bugs and still see the beauty. What about you, Casper? The thing that I feel I'm being called to responds to something we were talking about earlier when we were thinking about police brutality. And I remember reading recently about the power of being a witness when you see a cop pulling over and stopping someone or questioning someone, especially people of color, And that as a white ally, something that's helpful is is just to be a witness and pull over too, or stand nearby and just watch the encounter from a distance. And if possible to film it or to make note, maybe write things down of what you're seeing, because often the very presence of an additional person can de-escalate the situation. And we have a right to be observers of a police encounter. So we're not breaking any laws by doing that, but it is a way of standing in solidarity and just witnessing whatever happens. Hopefully there is no violence, but nonetheless, if something does happen, there is a witness. So I'm just being reminded of that call. This week's voicemail is from Peyton from Dallas. Hello, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. My name's Peyton, and I am from Dallas, Texas. 
I just finished your show, Optimism, The Patronus from book three. I loved it. But one of the questions that kind of stuck with me was from Vanessa when she asked, why is Lupin having Harry learn how to conjure Patronus in front of a Bogart? Why is this necessary? He could be teaching him how to do it, you know, without any threats present. So I really thought about this. And in book five, we see Harry teach Dumbledore's army how to conjure Patronuses in the Room of Requirement without anything going on uh, yet. (laughs) So I thought maybe Lupin's higher purpose here for Harry was that he knows that Harry is going to have to face danger almost inevitably all the time. And it is much harder to be optimistic, especially to transmute that into courage in front of something dangerous, in front of something dire and that's coming after you. And we see Harry at the lake towards the end of this book, you know, when he's confronting the Dementors initially (laughs) fail, right? He's not able to conjure the Patronus with everything going on. He fails. It's very scary. And it actually takes him a second time viewing that from the other side of the lake to actually do it, to actually have the courage to say, you know what? the stag, my dad, isn't coming. It's me. I have to be the one to take action. And I just don't think that he would have been fortified enough and strong enough to do all that if Lupin had just had him do it in in an empty room. Peyton, I think that you're right that we should always be challenging students. My concern is always the balance between challenging people and having them lose confidence in themselves. But I'm sure that I should just trust Lupin to manage that process well, because I think that you're exactly right, that that is how Harry gets his confidence and that he realizes that that confidence is just within him by seeing himself across the lake. So Lupin is a good teacher. I don't believe in people enough. I should probably challenge myself more. Thanks, Peyton. It's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. Who are you going to bless this time, Vanessa? Well, from lack of options, but I think I would pick this moment anyway. Hermione does, I think, like the most beautiful thing ever in this chapter. Hermione does not know how to cast a Patronus. This is like not even any WT level stuff. This is like fully qualified wizards cannot cast a Patronus. She's never studied. Like she has no idea how to do it. But Harry, in this moment of desperation, says to Hermione, like, Hermione, say expecto Patronum. And Hermione knows that there's just, like, nothing she can do to help. But she says expecto patronum anyway. And I just think it's the most beautiful, like, friend solidarity thing. She's standing there bearing witness, to your point, to this, like, horrible crime that's happening. And even though she can't do anything, she's, like, still trying. And it, she's basically saying, I love you, Harry, right? And, like, I will do anything and try anything, even things that I know are, like, hopeless. I just think it's the loveliest little thing. So what about you, Casper? I feel like we're blessing people for the same reason, but different people. Because I wanted to bless Sirius for as soon as he sees Lupin transform into a werewolf and, right, Lupin becomes dangerous. Sirius tries to join him and, and immediately becomes this big black dog. And we know that that's a strategy that has worked, first of all, to kind of calm Lupin down. But worse comes to worse. And sadly, that is what happens to fight him off and protect Harry and Hermione and, and Ron, which he does. And Sirius really pays the price for it. He's so physically hurt, he can't stay in his dog form. And that then leads to the Dementus finding him. So again, that desperate and 
loving act of protecting the friends that you have, even in real hopeless situations. Yeah. I would turn into a dog for you. I would say expecto patronum for you. <laughs> even though I'm really bad at spells. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess a blessing for all for all of us who, who are standing by our friends in difficult circumstances. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. And please leave us a review on iTunes. My mom loves reading them. Send us a voicemail. It's true. And when you send us a voicemail, please offer a blessing to one of the characters in the books. We love listening to other blessings that you all can offer. Thank you to all of you who came out in Chicago. It was so fun to meet you. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 21, Hermione's Secret, through the theme of crisis. This episode was produced by Ariana Nedelman, Vanessa Zoltan, and me, Kasper Terkyle. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week, we'd like to thank Peyton for sending in their voicemail, Stephanie Paulsell, and Rebecca and Charlie Ledley. We will talk to you next week. Bye. Hey, Demento Luigi. I think I found <laughs> Harry. No Italian. There are mobs of all different ethnicities. Dublin, Dublin Ireland. Hey, hey, Dementor. No. Dementor Bob. Don't make this about a nationality. Every country in the world has mafias and black markets and. Now, Hello, the he- Lord Dementor. I am the English mafia. <laughs> the head of the American mafia is in the White House right now. That is f***ing real. Hi, it's Joseph Fink. My friend Jeffrey and I created Welcome to Night Vale back in 2012. Normally, we're the ones turning our ideas into writing. But for our brand new show, Start With This, it's you who will do the creating. On each episode, we'll talk about a topic of the creative process. Then we will give you two short assignments, something to consume and something to create. You can share your work on our membership forum to see what other people are up to. We want you to start creating one simple assignment at a time, because the best way to start writing is to start writing. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.